Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Our next panel, uh, Mobility and Beyond. We're going to be talking about uh, orientation and mobility from three different, uh, three different areas, really. Uh, Mary Beth Cleveland, Cecilia Rose, and Diane Duchamp. We have, uh, we, I have been doing a lot of work, and Maryland has been Mary Beth Cleveland, particularly on floating bus stops. And so uh, we can hit a lot of different areas as far as orientation and mobility. Celia uh, has been doing a, a tremendous amount of work with Department of Veterans Affairs as an O&M instructor. I'm interested in, in what she has learned about with veterans. And then Diane will be talking about interesting gadget chain called WeWork. So guys, uh, why don't you, uh, Mary Beth, if you want to st- start it off, we are interested in mobility and beyond and what's the beyond part. Okay. So thank you so much for having me. First of all, um, I'm Mary Beth Cleveland and I'm a certified orientation mobility specialist. And I'm going to talk for a few minutes about um, basically what's changed over the years in terms of the built environment, including floating bus stops. Um, I want to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So um, first I want to talk about what is the built environment. It's basically self-explanatory. It's the environment that's built around us. It includes schools, houses, stores, sidewalks, parks, streets. But I'm mostly focused on the environment regarding orientation and mobility, including sidewalks, streets, bus stops, um, basically anything related to pedestrian traffic safety. So um, I'd say the changes that I've seen as um, as an O&M specialist over the years have been very exciting, but also very challenging. Blind travelers are having to learn new skills now and new ways to travel in such a complicated and complex environment. And the O&M instructors are having to adjust our teaching methods because the environment is, continues to change around us. But I also want to talk about the traffic engineers because when we go to them and we explain why their designs are not working for us, they must think outside the box. So I want to start with like, Um, Many years ago, ADA, American with Disabilities Act, passed, and there's been many good things that have happened with that um, legislation, but with sometimes we have good things, sometimes bad things come along. So we're going to start with curb cuts. Curb cuts are great. These are good for people who use walkers and wheelchairs. Um, Before curb cuts, if you used a wheelchair, you needed to be an evil Knievel just to get over the curbs to get off of your sidewalk. So why would curb cuts be bad? Bad because it was difficult for someone who relied on the presence of a curb to indicate a street. So the solution for that was DWS. This is the beginning of my alphabet soup, really. DWS stands for detectable warning surface. These are those um, truncated domes or bump bump dots that you find on a curb cut or a ramp that lead to a street. 
These are good. These are a good way to indicate to someone who's blind or has low vision the presence of a dangerous area, an area of conflict. So why would these be bad? I mean, they're good. They're detectable under your foot, under your cane. They alert the presence of a dangerous situation. They alert edge of a street, maybe along a subway platform. However, they're not always put in the proper location or used for the reason intended. And I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Some people think they're used as an orientation cue, but their original intention was just a warning, detectable warning surface. So I'm a little bit afraid that they're going to start popping up as a way to separate a bicycle lane from a pedestrian lane. In my opinion, this is not a good use for this surface. So for the solution for this, I say just understand really what they're used for and how they're used when you request them. And don't be afraid to request them. It's, it's an important tool that we use to indicate um, sort of a, a dangerous area. So when you advocate for yourself, it makes it safer for so many other people. Now, once you've gotten to the street, um, you've got to be able to cross the street. So we're going to talk about APS, Accessible Pedestrian Signals. Um, they are basically the crosswalk buttons, but they have an audible feature and a vibration feature. Um, so if someone that can't see it, it'll, it'll talk. And also someone who's deaf blind, it also has a vibration feature. And there's also a tactile arrow on there that you can feel to help you line up when it's not askew. <laughs> Um, APS are good. They allow a person to cross more safely at a difficult intersection. And we're talking about T intersections. That's where they first started using these because we use the surge of the parallel traffic to line up with and to know when it's time to go. But at a T intersection, um, there really isn't reliable parallel traffic. There really actually is no parallel traffic if you're talking about the top of the T. The traffic patterns and the traffic lights have really changed a lot. And so it feels like the parallel traffic surge is not consistently reliable. Or if you don't push the button, maybe you never even get a surge. Or you don't have enough time to get across the street. So APS are good. And they can also offer your information um, as far as where you are, some orientation um, clues. In some places, they have this in my county where I live. If you hold the button for three seconds, it can give you additional information. So it might say so the street names. You're about to cross A Street at First Street. So this, I don't see this everywhere, but I want you to know that it's out there. And so if you don't have it in your area, when you press and hold that, you can talk to your county and see if they can provide that. Um, what's What could be bad about APS? It's just not always available. It's not, APS is not everywhere, unfortunately, or maybe they're not working. Maybe the, the um, call button is a little too loud or too quiet, or it's just not working at all. So just be familiar with what APS is, Accessible Pedestrian Signals, Understand how to use them. You can talk to your own M specialist if you're not sure um, and advocate for them in your town. And I want to give a very big shout out 
to the ACB in New York. Yay, ACB in New York. Um, because thanks to this group, they filed a class action suit and they won. And so we're now going to see a lot more APS in New York City. Okay, so um, back to my alphabet soup here. Along with crosswalk light, there's also something called an LPI, leading pedestrian interval. I'm going to let you decide if this is good or bad. I'm kind of on the fence, really. Um, the leading pedestrian interval allows the pedestrian to have a head start, basically, before any traffic starts up. Um, so the pedestrians get out into the street before the traffic starts moving around. The bad part is you don't have your parallel traffic surge to align with when, um, when you start your crossing, but also they don't always include it with the APS timing. So the sighted pedestrians get a head start, but the APS might not announce the crossing time until the traffic starts. So I think that's a serious oversight in the programming. Um, so we need to get that taken care of. Um, adding more to the alphabet soup, um, RRFB, not sure if you've heard of this, but this is a rectangular rapid flashing beacon and pedestrian hybrid beacons, PHBs. Those sometimes are called hawk signals or hawk beacons. These are often used at mid-block crossings, which lots of times you might have a bus stop at a mid-block and you need to get across the street. So this is an option that some traffic engineers are, are using. The idea is to keep the traffic moving unless a pedestrian is present. Then either a yellow flashing light can come on, which tells the driver to yield to the pedestrian, or it might be a red light that tells the driver to stop. Just depends on what they choose. Um, why could these be, why are these bad? Well, they don't always have an audio feature so you might not even know that there's a yellow flashing light or if it's even working. Now, sometimes the ones that have the audio feature, they might say yellow lights are flashing, yellow lights are flashing. This, of course, does not mean it's safe to cross. You still have to make your own decision of when to cross. It's just that the yellow lights tell the driver that they're supposed to yield to the pedestrian that's there. What is the solution? Solution, just understand what these are. Um, there's a difference in those two different types, but know that they're available as a possible solution to a difficult crossing, to a mid-block crossing, perhaps. Um, and now I want to talk about bike lanes. Um, why do we care about bike lanes? The good side, bike lanes want to be I mean, people want to be more environmental. They want to be healthier. We just had a session on, on exercising. People want to use their bicycles more, especially since, of co since COVID. There are more choices for people with disabilities when it comes to riding bikes, too. There's more bicycle designs. Um, and bike lanes can be accessible for people to enjoy this activity, including older pedestrians who maybe can't walk as far, but maybe they can ride a bike. So with the excitement around bicycles, cities all over started designing cycle tracks and protected bike lanes. Bicyclists are vulnerable to being hit by cars. So these protected bike lanes can keep them separated from the moving traffic. Now here's the good part and here's why we care. The protected bike lanes get the bicyclists off the sidewalk 
where the pedestrians are walking. So now that we have protected bicycle lanes, we've been introduced to something called a floating bus stop. So people usually wait for the bus standing on a sidewalk. Protected bicycle lane is often next to the sidewalk down on the road, but it's protected by barriers from the cars. So the bicyclist actually could be hit by the bus because the bus comes into the bike lane over to the sidewalk to pick up the passenger. Bicyclist is not very big and the bus driver might not see him there. So the solution to this was to move the bus stop out beyond the bicycle lane to protect the bicycle rider. But now this means the pedestrian wants to catch the bus has to cross the bicycle lane to get to the bus stop. The bus stop is now floating in the road, now like an island. So I probably don't need to go over what's bad. I think you can guess, but I'm gonna mention some, some things that I have issues with. Um, the person with the vision disability, especially, must figure out where the bus stop is. It's now floating out in the road. They must cross the bike path. They have to trust the bicyclist will stop for them and then if he's on the bus and he's getting off the bus, how is he going to know that he's on an island? So these floating bus stops have been used all over the world. And they're now popping up in the United States a lot since COVID. It's really important to advocate for all of you to advocate for safety and accessibility on this particular issue in your town before they get built. I do feel like we need to find a way to make them safe and accessible because if they build them, they're going to have to go back and change the design because it's not safe for all pedestrians. We don't want the cyclists to get hit by a bus, but we also, we don't want to be in the, the trade-off either. So I don't have a great solution for this except for um, advocate, 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 talk to each other here in this group, listen to each other, listen to your O&M specialists, talk to your O&M specialists, talk to the engineers and the city planners in your town, listen to them, listen to what they have to say as well. But spend some time maybe talking to the bicyclist in your town. There's groups that are set up. Um, listen to them, understand what the bike lanes are and the floating bus stops, understand what they're about, but if you talk to the bike groups and you express your concerns and you educate them, they can maybe be advocates also if they understand what's going on. And maybe also we can problem solve on improving bicycle behaviors because right now I'm not seeing good bicycle behavior. <laughs> um, and at the very least, I think one thing that we can do is if you have floating bus stops in your town, Ask the transportation authority to announce the stops if you're on the bus that you're getting off on an island, that you're going to have to cross the bicycle lane to get to the sidewalk. And then I want you to do what you all do very well, advocate for yourself and advocate for each other. Okay, I'm going to pass it over to, who would you like to talk next, Pat? Cecilia, Let's Ryan. pass that over to uh, Cecilia. Um, well, first of all, um, I want to thank you folks for inviting me to be on the panel with my esteemed uh, 
fellow blindness professionals. Um, again, my name is Cecilia Rose. I'm a certified orientation mobility specialist. I also hold um, certification as a vision rehab therapist. Um, I recently retired um, as the blind rehab outpatient specialist at the VA Medical Center in Washington, DC. Locally, I worked for the Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind uh, for a number of years. And I also worked as um, a private contractor in O&M, um, as well as worked at a state agency for the blind in um, Massachusetts. Um, <clears throat> I attended the Boston College Parapatology Program, and that was their name for orientation mobility. Um, BC was one of the two original instructional programs for orientation and mobility that received a federal grant from um, to start the O&M programs. Uh, the other university was um, Western Michigan. So as many of you know, the VA was um, um, programs for veterans who are vision impaired um, began at the end of World War II. Um, with the return of what they call the war blinded service members. Um, and among the first programs was teaching these veterans to do what was then called foot travel. And the instructors were called orienters. Uh, so VA began what was the first formalized O&M program. Um, and the first O&M program was um, when it was transferred from the military to the VA was at Heinz. Uh, since then, the VA's programs have evolved, and they include 13 blind rehab centers, this um, coordinator, blind rehab outpatient specialists, and the rollout in, in 2008 of what has been called a continuum of care to reflect the number of veterans and active duty service members needing such services. So I just wanted to do an overview of services offered by the VA, in case there are people out there who um, may not think they're eligible for services through the VA. So um, the first person and the main person to contact would be the VIST coordinator. VIST coordinator includes, um, well, VIST coordinator stands for Vision Impairment Services Team Coordinator. And that means that that person also has a number of people on their team at the VA who assist in helping veterans or active duty service members with um, various um, needs. So on the, on the team, it could be included psychologists, social work, audiologists, um, diabetic nurse educator, a number of other people that help veterans who are vision impaired. Uh, this coordinator basically is the case manager for uh, those people. And as far as case management is concerned, that person, she, he or she makes referrals, they advocate, they do outreach, uh, they instruct the veteran in what services are available, what benefits both VA and also non-VA that that person may qualify for. Um, then there's the bros. That was my position. The bros is someone who has at least two certifications, but it could be um, an O&M, low vision, um, CATS, or uh, vision rehab. 
And those people would actually work with the individual as an outpatient. Uh, and that could be anywhere in their home, their workplace, um, the places of worship, community centers, wherever. But basically, the uh, Rose also works in the various areas of low vision, um, poor touch mobility, vision rehab, and um, computers or assistive technology. Probably what most of you are familiar with are the BRCs or the Blind Rehab Centers. There are 13 of them located across the country. Um, uh, they're, they're in uh, West Palm Beach, um, West Haven, Chicago, Palo Alto and Long Beach, California, West uh, American Lake in Washington State, Waco, uh, there's Bir Birmingham, uh, Augusta, and uh, Luxie and Tucson. I be believe I got it's 13 of them, of oh, Cleveland. Um, the Blind Rehab Center's uh, person gets the orientation mobility, communication skills, living skills, uh, manual skills, which could include anything from learning how to use their hands to make a um, birdhouse to using um, complicated equipment for woodworking, including saws and lace. Uh, adjustment to blindness is an important part of that as well. And social recreational activities are also important. Um, these centers may assess and train someone up to six weeks uh, in the various skilled areas that we talked about. Now, uh, there's also the continuum of care service. That's something that came about probably most uh, recently, 2008, is when a lot of those programs started. And the reason was to accommodate the many individuals as we were growing older who needed those services. Um, first of all is the Intermediate Low Vision Clinic. That basically consists of an optometrist or eye care professional. Usually it's an optometrist with a low vision um, background and also a low vision therapist. Um, they work with an individual, mainly low vision folks, in using their residual vision and also in learning how to use low vision devices. Now in DC and Maryland, we are a part of what's called a um, vision, excuse me. There are about 20 something visions or v, um, VA veterans integrated services networks across the country. So for DC and Maryland, we are included in Vision 5. Uh, Vision 5 also includes um, uh, medical centers and clinics in Washington, DC, all of Maryland, um, uh, parts of uh, Virginia, not all, because some of those are covered by Richmond VA. And um, all of the VAs in um, West Virginia are also included in the um, included in the uh, vision for five. Um, so the closest intermediate um, low vision center is at the Martinsburg VA. 
And then we have the advanced low vision clinics. And this is also where you have an eye care professional, low vision therapist, um, and probably another blind rehab specialist. Um, our intermediate, well, advanced low vision clinic is in Baltimore at the Baltimore VA. And there they also have uh, bros to work with the low vision therapist and the um, optometrist, as well as the VIS coordinator. Um, then there's the visor program. A lot of the visor programs, again, came about in 2008. And those programs consist of basically four areas, low vision, computer assistive technology, um, living skills, and orientation mobility. So a lot of the beyond part of my presentation is uh, more services for implementing the various um, uh, services that veterans and active duty um, service members may need. The visor program is can be an inpatient program. It could be up to, oh, let's see, up to nine or 10 days where a person could actually start their basic training um, or they might come for a refresher or they may come for learning something new, like learning how to use um, to get, maybe to get additional O&M training but also to get um, training in some of the headborne devices like OrCam or other, other things that they may be interested in or goals that they're seeking. Um, and there's also a program called the Vision Impairment Centers to Optimize Sight, the Victor's programs. They've actually been around for a while. There are three uh, places where you can get uh, services through a Victor's program. And it basically is what it says. So they do a more definitive um, medical diagnosis of the eye condition. They work on uh, evaluating the functional visual skills um, for an individual and also may use, um, teach the person how to use various more extensive low vision devices. They're located in Chicago, Palo Alto, California, in Northport, New York. So one of the also mobility and beyond points um, is that when I, with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, there are a lot of injuries related to um, traumatic brain injury. So one of the things we had to do was to adjust orientation mobility skills to meet the needs of a number of those um, veterans and active duty service members. That, can, that could have included, um, for instance, I did go to Northport with an individual who had a traumatic brain injury and a number of other issues. Um, but mainly it was working with him and using his vision um, and teaching him how to do things like use prism, prisms in his eyeglasses. Or we didn't actually use a cane. Some people we, we are, it might be an issue where there might be a cane use and they're not considered low vision or legally blind, where a number of years people said, used to think that only people who were legally blind or had, in fact, a number of optometrists and ophthalmologists think that or did think that, that you couldn't use a cane with somebody who wasn't legally blind. And what we've found at the VA and the various um, polytrauma centers that we have is that 
Um, that might not be true. There are some people who have issues with um, not knowing that they have a, a, you know, another side. They just completely ignore that, and they were bumping into things, or you know, um, maybe even uh, injuring themselves doing that. So one of the things that was not so so new, but it was actually using um, a cane with maybe one of those individuals. Um, now, if you want to get um, access to services through VA, um, the, the VA services are, you're eligible if you're eligible for health services through the VA, or if you have a vision impairment or, or some, what we call a catastrophic disability. And again, you would go through um, your, your VIS coordinator as the first person of contact to be able to uh, get those um, services or be referred for whatever services are appropriate for you. Now, most of the veterans we see um, at the VA include those with age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, glaucoma, retinitis pigmentosa, um, star dots, uh, also visual loss due to um, neurological problems like uh, multiple sclerosis or, or stroke. Um, so we provide it to legally blind, low vision, and individuals who have vision problems. Now, um, I also want to clarify that people who uh, you can get services, but you don't have to be service-connected. Service-connected could mean that you were diagnosed or your vision problem occurred during um, your service. For instance, a number of people who have star guards or RP were diagnosed uh, during um, their service years. Um, the same thing with people with glaucoma or diabetic retinopathy. Again, they were diagnosed um, during their active duty service. So they qualify for various um, things, benefits that may include not having to pay a, um, um, not having to pay a copay, or the person could also um, just be eligible if they're not if their income is low enough to get actual payments through the VA. Um, and I suggest if you really want to get in touch and get some services through the VA, you would do it through. Um, uh, the VIS coordinator, I have information for the local uh, folks at the Washington, D.C. VA. Um, the VIS coordinator's name is Ellen Rudikoff, and she's at 202-745-8000, extension 55398. Um, her email is Ellen one at va.gov. But as far as going beyond, um, at the VA, especially during COVID, we did a lot of um, telehealth. So people wondered, how are we going to do telehealth with O&M? And I think that's an issue that's come up a lot uh, throughout the pandemic with all agencies dealing with um, teaching orientation mobility. Um, during the pandemic. And uh, 
The VA has come up with a number of ways to do that type of thing. We actually have mandates for all of us, well, my colleagues who, who still work at the VA, um, to do a certain amount of telehealth in all areas. Um, so during the pandemic, one of the things we've always that we've done is reevaluated who would do best with um, using telehealth services or how would we determine who could get direct services actually one-on-one, face-to-face with an orientation mobility specialist. And um, that was the hard part in coming up with those guidelines. I know the um, 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 AER and um, ACVRPP have come up with guidelines. So a lot of that has been used to determine um, do we assess the risk of um, versus face-to-face versus doing things on telehealth? Um, so a lot of the things we've come up with on telehealth has involved um, maybe if it's a person new to orientation mobility, showing them how to um, talk about the different uh, concepts of orientation mobility, um, mainly doing that first or showing them some human guiding techniques um, or enlisting enlisting, uh, a family member or friend to assist with doing things while the O&M person is um, doing a video connect or telehealth with the individual. Uh, So that's, and that's still gonna be the future. One of the, also the initiatives of the VA is addressing the needs of individuals in rural areas where there aren't a lot of places where you can do face-to-face because you don't have the um, staff available to do that. So that's one of the, um, and actually that's the main thing in in mobility and beyond, um, other than the uh, working in different ways with uh, traumatic brain injured um, service members and veterans. Um, Right, Cecilia, yes, absolutely. Very good. So um, I believe that's pretty much all I have, unless um, there are also things like, um, you know, there are some uh, electronic travel aids that because it's the VA, we have more access to, such as um, uh, the sonic glasses that detect um, how close you are to obstacles or drop-offs. And... um, also, there are devices for um, rollators and wheelchairs that uh, have been approved by the VA for use with our veterans. Thank you, Cecilia. That's great. As a matter of fact, you just uh, helped me to introduce the next device that we're going to be taking a look at. Uh, thank you, Cecilia. Uh, the uh, WeWalk, Diane. Would you like Hi, to talk everyone. to us about Thank the you. WeWalk and tell hey, us, Diane. and then we'll take Hi. some questions at the end. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, I am Diane Ducharme, and I'm going to talk about the WeWalk. But first, I'd like to say it's so nice to be presenting with Cecilia. We used to work together at the Lighthouse a long, long, long time ago. So it's nice to see yes. you again. So, Same yeah, here. I would like to talk about the WeWalk cane. And I do have my video on in case anybody can see. So 
the WeWalk is a smart cane. It's an app-based cane. But the first and foremost thing about the WeWalk is, although it is a smart cane, it is not smarter than you. It is absolutely <laughs> vital that you have O&M training before you use the WeWalk. It's not a replacement for O&M. So that being said, the WeWalk is a computerized handle that attaches to an Ambutech cane that comes with your WeWalk. You have an option of a 51 inch, a 54 inch, or a 59 inch. Now, if you have a cane that you particularly are fond of, for example, I have a pink cane that I use. If I wanted to connect that to the WeWalk, an adapter comes in the box that will allow me to connect my cane to the WeWalk. So when you get the box with the WeWalk in it, you will have to screw the um, handle onto the cane. So let me just open this up and talk about the actual cane itself. So the cane has um, one button on the back, and that is your power button. And then on the front, it's got, they feel like buttons, but it's actually a thumb rest. So that would tell you how to hold it um, and put your thumb in between these two little grooves on the front. Directly underneath that is the touchpad. And that will allow you to access the touchpad features on the WeWalk. Directly underneath that is the ultrasonic, it's called button, but it's not really a button that you press. In fact, you should avoid touching that button. You do not want to cause a malfunction. So what that button does, it allows the WeWalk to detect obstacles that are from your waist up. So that can help you with low-hanging branches or low-hanging signs so you can avoid them. And the way that would work is if you're walking along the street and you get a vibration, that means there's an obstacle approaching. And you can use your preferences to adjust how you want that vibration, whether you want a lot of um, vibration, a lot of detection, actually, um, a little detection, a medium amount. So it depends on your skill level and your preferences. So if you're walking along and your cane starts vibrating, that means there's an obstacle ahead. So what you can do is use your cane as you normally would by tapping left and right. That way you can get a feel for how large this obstacle is. It'll give you an idea of what you're actually approaching. It may not tell you what you're approaching, but the size of what you're approaching. And then by adjusting yourself to the right or to the left, whenever it stops vibrating, then you'll know, okay, I'm clear and I can continue to go. So the WeWalk has a 12 month warranty. So if anything, should malfunction within those 12 months, you're covered. 
And the WeWalk is an app-based cane. It can work on Apple and Android. And so you need to download the WeWalk app. It works in conjunction with the WeWalk app. If you don't have the WeWalk app connected to your cane, the cane will still do the vibrations for the obstacle detection, but it will not do any of the other features such as navigation and exploration and transportation. And I'll get into all that. One new feature that WeWalk has just implemented is called AIM. AIM, which is Artificial Intelligence Mobility. And this is something that the user would enable themselves, and that would allow someone else, whether it would be a family member or a mobility instructor, to be able to track them. So say you're a mobility instructor and you're working with somebody who has a WeWalk and you're sending them out on their first solo mission you would be able to then track how they are doing without having to be there with them. You can uh, monitor their swiping. You can monitor when they stop. Like if you notice that they've stopped for five minutes, you can assess what's going on there. It's so, and same thing with um, a parent. Say it's a child who has a WeWalk and the child, the, parent can also monitor the, the child's progression on their venture out. So let me show you how this works. I have it connected to a Bluetooth speaker. So let me first use my iPhone. Open WeWalk. Okay. Okay. So let me slow it down. Containers, headings, language, characters, words, speaking rate. Of course, I go the wrong way. Okay, there we go. Okay. So swiping across. It will give you your current location. I can choose to save that. I can share it with somebody. Okay, so I want to connect it to my WeWalk. So let me turn my WeWalk on by using that one button on the back. You hear a little ditty play and it'll start to vibrate. Okay, so all I have to do is tap on connect me walk. Okay, so now I know I'm connected. So let's say that I had turned my WeWalk on a while ago and I forgot where I put it. So I could hit Where's my WeWalk? And my WeWalk will make this. I to me it sounds like an old um, pterodactyl sound, but 
So there it is. So now I can keep doing that until I find my wee walk. Okay, so now I found my wee walk. Text forward, button, transport, button navigate, button, my places, button, tap bar, selected. So if you go into preferences, that will allow you to change things such as the, um, you can change the font size to make it larger or smaller, depending on your eye condition. You can change the contrast. So whether you like it black on white, white on black, um, black on yellow. And as you can, you can hear it vibrating because it's detecting the obstacles in the room. And again, you can adjust the sensitivity of that. So you can also, in a way, uh, mute it by sliding two fingers down the front. So now I stopped it. Um, turn it back on. Now the, the great thing about the WeWalk is you're never alone because it has an, a, a training academy built right into it. So when you first get it and turn it on, it'll walk you through all the gesture like training. Oops, sorry. So that you'll learn what the tapping means and what the swiping means. And then there's also an academy so that it'll take you through step by step on what each of the options on the WeWalk means and what they can do. So let's go and see. So it has an assistant, which is a speech option. So the WeWalk has a microphone and speaker built into it. So let's see. What is my battery power? Select preference. Oh, you can try activate assistant button. What is my battery power? Oh, she didn't get that. Hold on. You can try I'm telling you, they're like kids. They don't do what they're supposed to do. I do want to say the assistant is still in the beta, so forgive me for that. All right, I'm going to try this one more time. What is my battery level? Level is 100%. Awesome. Okay. So moving on from that. So you can either use your phone to uh, get all the options you want, or if you just want to use the cane itself, you can double tap on the touchpad. Hold on. 
hold on a second. I may be into something here that. Okay, let me get out of that. So preferences. You can try tap bar. There we go. There we go. I had to get out of what I was in. So I double tapped on the touchpad. So now by swiping my finger, I have these options of I can find my phone. So that's if you lose your iPhone, you don't know where it is. You can tap on that and your iPhone will start beeping. Device preferences. Device preferences. You can go into that and that would allow you to change the volume of your VWAC and the um, the sensitivity, the orientation. So you can decide how often you want the VWAC to tell you what you're passing. You can have that on a low sensitivity or you can jack it up high so that you can hear it. I think I have mine set at every 80 feet. It'll announce what I'm passing. Transport. So transport will tell you all the public transportation that's around you. It'll list bus stops. It'll list train stations. Vice preferences. Transport. Explore. Okay, so we're going to explore. So I double tap on that. And then these are your categories. Pubs and clubs. Pubs and clubs. Fitness and wellness. Fitness and wellness. Colleges and universities. Colleges and universities. You can probably hear all this yourself. Jobs and services. Professional with others. Cafes. Arts and entertainment. Pubs and clubs. Okay, so we're going back through the list. Fitness and wellness. Colleges and universities. Shops and services, colleges and unit fitness and wellness. On Senior Lynch Playground, 640 feet. Fresh. Seminary Park, one point Rogers Forge Dog Run, 1.71 mile. Oh, there. Um, we can't hear you really well now. We have the, the, we walk is talking really well now, okay. but you've gone away. Okay. Oh, there you go. So with, okay, let me, um, so I put in that I want to go to the dog walk. So it's going to tell me my options on how the cane can help me get there. So I can get walking directions. I can get lift directions, uh, Uber. So what that means is if I tap on lift or Uber, then the cane will open up my lift or Uber so that I can access those services. If I select transportation, then the cane will tell me how to get there from public transportation. So it might say, um, it'll direct me, number one, to the bus stop. 
and then it'll tell me which bus to get on, whether it's the 57 or the 53. It'll let me know what stop to get off at. And then when I get off, it'll give me walking directions then to the dog park. So let's, um, I'm actually gonna turn the cane off for now because- Powerful tool. We're gonna see if it there, is. It's a got very, any, uh, very powerful yeah. tool. Um, let's see if there's any, any questions for us too. Yeah, and I also have close. Paul Burden, who mm -hmm. is our, the United States we walk rep, local rep. So he's on and he can answer any kind of questions as well. If somebody has more technical questions. And Paul, if there's anything else you'd like to add. Hey Paul. So yes, so good good afternoon, everybody. So first of all, <laughs> Diane, you could put me out of a job. That that was a fabulous presentation. Um, it really was. So just a couple of things that I would add. Um, so Diane mentioned everything that is integrated into the cane handle itself. There is also an LED light that can be um, turned on and off via gestures or in the device preferences. So when you're out and about at night and you want to make sure you're seeing, there's a there's a very powerful LED light uh, that is incorporated into the handle. Um, I, the other thing that I wanted to comment on before before uh, we take questions is. Um, the uh, AI mobility, that was a joint, that's a joint effort between Microsoft and WeWalk. And this really is, and Diane described it very well, um, it is really a tool that we believe is going to be used primarily by O&M specialists working with their students so they can work with their students in a, in a more effective and efficient manner. And then, as Diane did point out, they can even sort of work with them, so to speak, remotely. Without, without actually having to be there. Um, it is not, um, not gonna be extra, it's just gonna be incorporated right into the next update of the app. And uh, we're looking for uh, an April 1, approximately an April 1 uh, release date. So and, and um, other uh, than that, yeah. We please. do wanna let the O&M instructors know that that service would be free to them to be able to access, correct? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Thanks, Diane. So um, if a person is using our WeWalk app um, and not using the smart cane, there is a subscription fee because we are being charged by Google and Microsoft and Apple when we hit their uh, cloud services for navigation and exploration, et cetera. So um, that said, O&Ms uh, are going to be able to use the app for free. Um, and they'll be able to access a dashboard that they can use to monitor the activity and the progress of, of their students. Um, so yeah, thank you, Diane. You're, good thank point. you very much. Good. Uh -huh. Let me see if we can take a couple of questions quickly. We had three wonderful panelists here. Uh, do we have any hands? We do not currently. Okay, well, I, I also want to mention that the WeWalk, it comes with a nice marshmallow rolling tip, but you could change that to any kind of tip you want. You can use the new OmniSense, you could use one of those, um, a bigger tip, a ceramic tip. So whatever tip works best for you, you can change that. I have one question then. Um, Diane, you mentioned that <clears throat> during the middle, the beginning of your presentation, that you could get it to tell you things waist high and above, which is wonderful. Um, what about things lower than waist high? I mean, you can find a curb 
or a step with your cane, but what about something that's like knee high? Paul, you want to take that? Yeah. So, um, so no, that's just going to be detected through, you know, just the, the, and I, I would stress as Diane said, her, the very first thing she said is our smart cane is not a substitute for the fundamental, um, O and M, uh, education that, that, that people need. So for anything that is lower than that, that would just be a part of the O&M training that, that uh, people have to use the cane mm-hmm. because the prevailing mm-hmm. angle of the cane is going up, yeah, up and catching things that are chest high and above. Right. That makes sense. <clears throat> okay. Now, one thing you can do we walk course, if you say you walk into um, a room that you're unfamiliar with and you're, you know, dabbling around doing whatever you're doing and then you're like, uh-oh. I kind of lost my sense of direction. You can use the we walk, the sonar part to say, all right, that's a wall, that's a wall, that's a wall. Oh, it's not vibrating. That must be the door out. So that's one way that you can yeah. use that vibration for uh, your orientation. I would like to thank all of our panelists that we just had. That was a fascinating, a lot of information in that. Yay, uh, floating bus stops. Uh, Mary Beth, thank you. And Diane. Paul, thank you very much on the We Want. A lot of stuff to think about and consider. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. thank you, everyone. Enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Diane. Thanks. Thank you so much. Bye. All right, take care. <clears throat> thank you. Bye. Meryl, the next, the recreation panel is yours. Uh, Robin Hughes. Um, she is going to talk about uh, kayaking. Adaptive kayaking, uh, horseback riding, uh, and rail trails in Maryland and Massachusetts. And uh, so take it away, Robin. Good afternoon, everyone. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. Great. Um, During my talk, if at any time you can't hear me, or if I'm going too fast, or if I'm going too slow, please feel free to interrupt me and let me know. And so I'm delighted to be here with you today. I'm an adaptive and mainstream kayaker, hiker, and retired horseback rider. And today I'm going to share with you some of my experiences in the adaptive kayaking, hiking, and horseback riding communities. But first, before I um, start telling you about my experiences in those communities, I'll first very briefly tell you a little bit about myself in general. I have an MA in German Jewish history from Baltimore Hebrew University, and I have a BA in Jewish studies from the University of Maryland at College Park. And for 15 years, I was a museum professional, a docent, and a museum educator at the Jewish Museum of Maryland prior to the pandemic. So now I'll start by telling you about my adaptive kayaking experiences. I kayak 
with the Friends of Patapsico Valley State Park Adaptive Recreation Program. They have, I, I feel it's a fantastic adaptive recreation program, and they offer a variety of adapted activities at Patapsico Valley State Park throughout most of the year. These activities include adapted kayaking, hiking, cycling, and fly fishing. And they run these programs with other organizations in the community, including the Kennedy Krieger Institute, Team River Runner, the Baltimore Canoe and Kayak Club, and the Mountain Club of Maryland. And those are, um, they um, also run their programs um, with them some other programs in um, some other organizations in general, but um, those are the main partner organizations that they partner with frequently. And I should also mention they also partner with the Patapsico Parks State Park itself as well. And most of the staff members who run these adapted recreation programs for the Friends of the Park, they most of them are volunteers. And many of them are elite athletes from their respective adapted or mainstream and or mainstream sports. So it's very exciting, I think, for the athletes in this program to be able to interact with staff members who are elite athletes themselves. And all of the programs are free of charge to the participants. And so now I'll tell you specifically about my kayaking experience with the Friends of the Park. So the way it works is that they in general have their adapted recreation programs and specifically their adapted kayak program on Saturdays. And the kayakers will generally kayak for one hour and they will register in advance of the program. And then the way it works for me, because I'm a kayaker with a profound visual impairment, I will kayak in a single kayak. And single just means it's for one person. And so I'll kayak in a single kayak. And then I'll have a kayak guide in a single kayak ahead of me. And then I'll have another kayak guide in a single kayak behind me. And the guide who is in front of me will give me verbal instructions such as turn right or turn left or go straight. And so I'll just follow those instructions and or they'll also guide me 
by simply having a normal conversation with me from their kayak. And so I'll be able to follow their kayak and um, just simply by listening to their voice. Some other strategies that can be used for adapted kayaking in general for kayakers with visual impairment and blindness include using a beeper and putting a beeper into a dry bag. A dry bag is a waterproof sack that comes in different sizes and it can be attached to the guide's kayak through a bungee cord. And when basically almost all kayaks that I know of there are hooks on the kayak, and so the bungee cord can simply be attached um, through um, just hooking it on the kayak hook um, on the kayak that um, belongs to the guide, and then they can follow along that way. And so the um, adapted hiker can. And then the other strategy that one can use is that, and this is the way that I kayak when I'm kayaking in the mainstream. My kayak partner is my mother and we'll kayak in a tandem kayak, so a two-person kayak. And so the way that paddle boats are steered, they're steered from the stern. The stern is the back of the boat and the bow is the front of the boat. And so I'll sit in the bow of the boat and then the, um, my kayaking partner who will be responsible for the navigation, they will sit in the stern so that they can steer. Does anyone have any questions before I move on to adapted hiking? Can everyone still hear me? So far, no raised hands. Okay. All right. Thank you. So I will move on now to adapted hiking. So I hike with the Friends of Patapsico Valley State Park Adapted Recreation Program also. And when they have an adapted hike in the park, um, which is where all of their adapted hikes are um, located, they will select a trail that is a paved trail so that it's accessible not only to the hikers with visual impairment or blindness, but also to the hikers who use wheelchairs. And then in contrast, when I hike in the mainstream, I'll hike on um, the park's all-sensory trail. And in the low-vision blindness community, an all-sensory trail is widely referred to as a Braille trail. And a Braille trail, for those of you who may be unfamiliar, is a trail that has both print and Braille signage, and it also has a guide rope or a guide rail. And when I hike a braille trail, um, 
I will, particularly if it's a um, rural park in a natural setting, like the one at Patapsico Valley State Park, which is an unpaved trail with natural rock and natural tree roots to recreate the hiking experience that can be found on most of Patapsico Valley State Park's mainstream trails. So their old sensory trail, their braille trail, is located in a heavily wooded area and it has and so it has um in particularly in the summertime um poison ivy vines and thorn bushes can in some places on some days be in contact with the guide rope and so i'll elect to wear a garden glove just to protect my hand from contact with those vines. And two of the other braille trails that I've hiked, there's one in Woodertown, Massachusetts at the Riverfront um, Park. It's the um, called the Riverfront Park Braille Trail. And it, in contrast to the Patapsico Valley State Park All Sensory Trail, is an urban park trail. So it has a paved surface and it has a fixed and permanent guide rail. And the trail is very nice. It runs along the Charles River. So it's very scenic. And then in contrast to that rail trail, I've also hiked a trail trail in Western Maryland at a park called the Contocton Creek um, Park. And um, it's just referred to as the Contocton Park Creek Trail Trail. And it's a county park and it's a rural park. And so it in contrast does not have the degree of braille signage that the other two parks that I've mentioned that their braille trails have. And presume my assumption is that that's the case simply because the Contocton Creek Park, their braille trail, um, they're a county park. And so they presumably don't have access to the financial resources that the other two parks do. And also just to make you aware their signage is their braille signage is written on plastic braille label paper that presumably was created um in someone's home or um not in um a um professional braille production by a professional braille production agency but again my assumption is all of that is just because presumably the county park has less funding um, at its disposal. And um, if you're interested in finding a Braille trail in your local community, because I know that some of you 
may be um, listening to this from outside of the state of Maryland. So there is a directory one line that you can access through Google if you'd like to, and it's called um, Nature for the Blind and um, dot com. And um, so you would just go to, I believe it's dot com. It could be dot work, but I believe <coughs> it's dot com. So if um, you just Google that, you can go to that site and in my opinion, it's an excellent directory of Braille trails. It has Braille trails listed all over the United States and internationally as well. So again, I, in my opinion, it's a fantastic resource. I would just recommend that if you do Google Braille Trails, that before you go to the Braille Trail, that you please contact the organization or park um, that um, is responsible for the trail to make sure that the information that you've read online or in a um, hard copy publication is still up to date. Before I move on to therapeutic writing, does anyone have any questions about Braille Trails? No raised hands. Okay, all right, so um, thank you. So I will continue and go on to therapeutic writing. And just to let everyone know who may be unfamiliar, um, instead of using, for whatever reason, um, instead of using the term adaptive to refer to um, horseback riding for people with disabilities, it's instead in the horseback riding community referred to as therapeutic horseback riding, um, just to make you aware of that. So my journey with um, the therapeutic riding program began when I was five years old, when I was in kindergarten. And just to let you know um, how long ago this was, um, I am 47 years old now. So that was a long time ago and 42 years ago. And so um, when I was in kindergarten, um, I asked my parents if for my sixth birthday, I could please have horseback riding lessons. And they said yes. And so they enrolled me in a, in a um, therapeutic riding program that was run by the 4-H program in Carroll County, which is a rural suburb of Baltimore. It's approximately a 45-minute drive from northwest of Baltimore. And um, I and I believe that program is still in existence today. It's a wonderful program, as are all of these programs, um, the kayaking and um, the hiking programs, all of them that I've mentioned. Um, and so I started riding, um, even though it was a birthday present for my sixth birthday, um, because of the way scheduling um, the um, sessions worked out, I believe I actually started riding with the therapeutic program when I was five. 
and I learned how to um, give the horse basic commands, such as how I to uh, ask them to walk. I was taught how to ask them to turn and how to ask them to stop and how to ask them to trot. And the trot is the gait. A gait is refers to the movement of a horse. And so the trot is the next fastest gait after the walk. And because of my young age, I had two side walkers, a leader, and of course, an instructor as well. And during my therapeutic riding years, I attended a um, school horse show, which a school refers to the program that you're riding for, the riding program. And so um, I attended a um, horse show um, with um, the group of other riders that I rode with. And I rode for approximately three and a half years in that program. And then I took an approximate three and a half year break from riding. And then when I was in seventh grade, I asked my mother if I could please have private riding lessons for my 13th birthday. And she said yes. And so I enrolled in a mainstream riding school program. It was actually um, the same riding school where the 4-H therapeutic riding program that I rode in was located. And one of the instructors that I had for the 4-H therapeutic riding program, she was my instructor for my private riding lessons as well. And in the um, mainstream riding program, I learned to do more advanced skills. So for instance, I learned how to jump a horse. And that means to um, jump over, um, they look sort of like small fences, very um, like one, two, in my case, I jumped one to two feet. And, um, and I also learned to canter, which is the next fastest gait after the trot. And the way that riders with visual impairment or blindness can um, do these skills in general is that the instructor will just give them verbal um, assistance, navigation assistance. And when a competitive rider is one a jumping course, then um, if they're too far away from the instructor to be able to, um, for them to be able to, well, for the rider to be able to hear the instructor, then they will use, at least during the time that I was riding competitively, they would use a radio system but inside the rider's helmet. But, um, in my case, I was never jumping courses that were that long or that wide. So they weren't far enough away from my instructor that um, I wasn't able to hear her when she was just speaking naturally from the center of the ring. Um, 
So does anyone have any questions about any of that before I conclude? Uh, Robin, hi, this is Pat. Hi, yes. Hi, I was I I actually tried to unmute after the last uh after the last piece where you were talking about typing. I thought it was fascinating. Your phone's your your, your microphone's gone. There it is. Okay. Um so my question, of course, you're using your cane when you're doing the hiking, correct? Yes. So that you're mm-hmm. not tripping over the, the, the tree roots and all of that stuff. Um, yes. Did the trails have different ty- different levels of, of um, difficulty? Um, well, as I mentioned, the unpaved trails, I think a hiker would find more challenging because particularly the one at Patapsico Valley State Park, because they intentionally left the natural tree roots and Mm -hmm. the natural rock in place. And so, yes, that is something that a cane user or guide dog user would want to pay particular attention to. And Normally, when, um, for those who may be unfamiliar, normally when you hike with or when you walk with a cane, you will um, walk with a cane in the center of your body and swing it from the center of your body like a pendulum. But some O&M instructors, mobility instructors, say that um feel that it's okay when you're on a very rocky uneven terrain um to hiking to have the cane more to the side of your body and swing it so that particularly if you're ascending or descending a steep hill that you don't accidentally impale yourself if you lose your footing one slippery rock means obviously you don't want to um, incur an injury to your body with the cane. But you just have to be, if you do um, switch the cane technique to having it more off center, O&M instructors will all tell you that you need to be so careful um, not to miss any obstacles on the side that you may not be covering as well. You have to um, have ex- use extra effort in order to make sure you're covering both sides equally. Yes, that sounds. Yeah, I would agree with that. Not having done a lot of hiking lately, but yes, um, and then also making sure that you have the proper footwear. I think is going to be critical too. Oh, definitely. Uh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, the, the other, they recommend. The other, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Robin. I'm, I'm sorry. They recommend um, just in like if you um, go to um, a, a hiking specialty organization like REI, they rec- and they also um, sell products. Um, so, um, but they recommend their consultants recommend that people, regardless of where they buy um, the shoes, which organization they recommend that you purchase special hiking shoes. They're not flat on the bottom. Um, They have indentations um, to help prevent falls on slippery rock. Right. Better than my sneakers than I would guess. (laughs) (laughs) 
The other thing I was going to comment on, Robin, is that having taken some therapeutic writing lessons uh, in my past with Jane, uh, I was always, I was, I always thought that you that you just sort of yank the, the bridle, you know, the the bridle with the horse, and to make it turn and do with this, that, and the other. Learned after a while that it's all done with your legs. So tremendous leg uh, strength and and guiding the horse basically that way, even asking the horse to uh, move from the walk to the trot to the canter. If mm-hmm. you're good by your, your legs and your leg strength. Yeah. That way you're not pulling on their mouth because mm-hmm. for those who may be unfamiliar horses, when they're being ridden, they wear a bit in most cases, a bit is a metal piece that fits through their teeth um and it doesn't hurt them but it if a rider is pulling all day on um the bit and particularly if it's a young experienced inexperienced child they might pull a little bit too hard and so that's why um it's really great if riders can learn to steer using their legs I remember another one. thing, another thing to consider um, also some, since we did all the, the therapeutic riding for, for many years <clears throat> using English riding and you do a lot more with the reins and your legs and stuff with English riding rather than Western. I find that it's helped me a lot with my communications with my guide dog, because mm-hmm. if I want to turn to the right, if I, I know that we're going to be turning right soon, I'll turn my shoulders Mm-hmm. Um, that way. And, and if you indicate with your body, just like when you're riding with a horse, if you wanted to go faster or slower, you do it with your legs, same thing with your dog. Um, so mm-hmm. I find that, that it's, it, that added a big dimension to my using of a guide dog. Um, another one thing that, that we did <clears throat> in our therapeutic riding, we did a lot of it in an arena. Um, walking, trotting, cantering. Um, but then we've done a lot of trail riding, um, mainstream trail riding. And occasionally the, the people that ran the trail rides were very uncomfortable having a blind person come and, and participate in their trail riding. And we had to fight a few times to, to not be turned away. Um, one, one that we really enjoyed and, um, um, Pat and another friend of ours really loved battlefields. So they knew that the only way to get me to go to a battlefield was to get me on a horse to do it because I love horses. So we went, there's a, there's a horseback ride tour of Gettysburg, the battlefield. And that was fascinating. I would just communing with my little horse um, <laughs> and, and I don't care where we were, but that was, that was a lot of fun. So I very much enjoyed my horseback riding experiences. It's an amazing sport. And I, I would spend work, more time talking mm-hmm. to, especially when I got an Appaloosa. Mm-hmm. And I would sit and talk to my horse and tell him about the Nez Perce Indians and Chief Joseph and how they killed all the, the Appaloosas. You know, whenever I got an Appaloosa, I had to make sure he knew that story. And my instructor would say, are you going to get on the horse today or are you just going to talk? You know, but, but I, I love horses. I, I sit and commune with them or whatever, but me that's, that's me. 
Yes. <laughs> and I had an Appaloosa that I rode and I leased him for a while as well. Um, I rode him. He was a school horse um, and I also leased him. And he was amazing. His name was Rusty. We called him Trusty Rusty. <laughs> we had one named Lucky. And one day there were donuts in the corner of the arena and I could not get that horse to move. I'm lucky I'm paying for this. You know, he wanted to go to where the donuts were. And so that was a very frustrating day, but horses, you, you sort of, it's a humbling experience because if, if they really don't want to go where you want them to go, there really isn't too much you can do. I mean, they weigh a lot more than you do. Oh yeah. And, and so that was a very frustrating day. Lucky and I were having fits that day, but I don't think he ever got a donut, but that was fun. But what was interesting is when uh, I would be on the horse and the horse would not be doing what I want. And then the instructor would get on the same horse. All of a sudden the horse would realize, oh, we have a professional on me right now. And they knew the difference between a student and the teacher. And it was pretty amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your comments and your questions. Um, Could I just um, make a couple more points? Do we have time? We do. um, Uh, I noticed that Simon um, Henson Jones is here from Dragon Boat. Um, So why don't you you finish up your remarks? That's fine. Sure. And then and then we'll get Simon to talk about the the dragon boating. Okay, great. Thank you. And so I just wanted to conclude um, and just let everyone who may be new to therapeutic horseback riding and to adapted kayaking um, and um, I just wanted, and who's considering these sports, I just wanted to very quickly mention a few of the ethical issues that you're likely to be confronted with. And I know at first this is, may seem a bit off, to- a little bit off topic um, from my talk, but um, I feel it's very important as an advocate for these sports for me to also tell you to mention these things to you quickly. Um, the first is that there is an ethical question regarding asking a sentient being to perform a recreational activity that could potentially get them injured, that they can't give informed consent to um, for a human. And um, but, um, the response to that, you know, it's just something to keep in mind. The response, the way that I feel about that is, and as Jane alluded to, uh, I have always weighed less than 100 pounds and horses weigh over 1,000 pounds. And my top speed is probably only eight miles per hour their top speed is 30 miles per hour. So if they didn't want me to be riding them, I wouldn't be able to ride them. And then the next thing that I think is important to be aware of, riding is a very expensive sport, not for the therapeutic riders. It's free. In most cases, therapeutic riding is free for the participant, but it is expensive 
for the owners of the horses who in some cases are also the instructors for these programs um, to provide the appropriate care to ensure the horse's health and welfare. And so I know there is some concern in the country today about income inequality. So that's just something to consider. But my response to that is that horseback riding the field, the profession provides jobs, both unskilled and skilled jobs to um, people. So it contributes to the labor market. So that's how that's my response to that question. And also um, one of the other um, two issues that I'll just raise is so you're aware of it is what happens to the horse when they be, need to be retired? That is when their health no longer permits or when their behavior no longer per allows them to continue to be a part of a riding program. And that I think today is a good, you know, an important question for um, a prospective rider to observe. In my day, because this was 30 to 40 years ago, uh, there was more farmland just in general in the US. And so all of the horses that I knew who needed to be retired, it was my perception that all of them went to good homes. Um, but the other um, thing to consider in this question is that I there were horses during the time that I was riding that would have likely starved in the wild if they had not been removed from the wild through rescue programs and been trained to be um, horses um, to be ridden in riding programs. And then the last ethical issue that I will raise is for adapted kayak programs is that I have observed kayakers who appear to have severe, profound intellectual disability placed in single kayaks by themselves. Um, and so they presumably are not capable of giving informed consent to being in a kayak by themselves on the water. They were, their kayak was tethered to their guide's kayak, but nevertheless, they were being expected to incur that risk without being able to give informed consent. And my response to that is, I personally, if I were a guardian of someone of a kayaker with severe profound intellectual disability or a staff member for that person, I personally would not make that choice for them. I would not feel comfortable putting in, them in that position. But I think, in my opinion, as an athlete, I think it should that decision isn't mine to make um, as an outside observer. I, I think it's um, the decision should be made between the guardian staff member and the um, their staff member or um, the staff members who are running 
the adapted program. And also just to conclude, um, just to let you know that there is a higher incidence of people with intellectual disability in the United States than there is with congenital severe visual impairment or blindness in the US. So in order to run some, if not many of these adapted kayaking programs, they are dependent upon individuals with intellectual disability to participate in these programs in order for kayakers like me to have that opportunity. So thank you very much. Oh, sorry, my final point, if I may, is that what I'm so grateful to about all of these programs that I've mentioned to you today is that I've observed that there are two models of what how an organization can focus its um, per, what its purpose can be. It can either be focused on the disability as a challenge or a problem, a perceived problem to be overcome, and that's the focus of the program, or it can focus on the sport and by extension, fostering a sense of positive community amongst the athletes and the staff members, the guides. And I'm so grateful, and it, while it acknowledges the disability, the existence of disability, and makes the appropriate accommodations for it, it doesn't focus on disability as something that's a perceived or real problem or a perceived or real challenge to be overcome, but simply something um, um, that just is um, a, just as a natural occurrence and that the sport is what's focused on. And I'm so grateful to all of these organizations that I've told you about because my perception is that they have adopted the latter model, the model that they recognize the existence of disability but they choose to focus on the sport and helping athletes to be the best athletes they can be. And by extension, fostering a sense of positive community amongst the athletes and staff members. So thank you so much for inviting me to speak to you today. It's been a true privilege and I hope that you'll give these sports a try. Thank you. Thanks Robin. Thank you. Um, and we have, oh, go ahead. Uh, yes, um, I would like to introduce uh, Simon Hinson-Jones, and he is the secretary of the Dragon Boat uh, Out of Sight Dragons. And I got to tell everybody, I was one of the first ones, the first year that they had the Dragon Boat, and I did it for a whole year when Maybell was um, president, and I really enjoyed it. So I'm really forward looking forward to your talk. So thank, uh, thank you very much, Simon. Thank you very much for having us uh, in your convention. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. um, as Meryl explained, I'm with the Out of Sight Dragons. Uh, we call ourselves OSD for short. 
Um, OSD is a dragon boat racing team of blind, visually impaired individuals. Um, <clears throat> dragon boating is an outdoor water sports activity with usually 20 paddlers sitting in a long canoe-like boat, sitting to a side with a paddle. There's a sighted drummer who sits up front on a chair, and there's a steerer at the back. Uh, I'm the steerer for the out-of-sight dragons. Uh, the first two paddlers uh, in the boat are called strokes, um, and when they hit, when their paddles hit the water, the drummer beats the drum so that the <clears throat> other 18 paddlers behind know to keep in time and they paddle in a synchronized way. So uh, we all meet up uh, on Saturday mornings down at the <coughs> wharf, DC wharf, uh, near 11th and Main Avenue in Southwest. And uh, we go out um, on Saturdays for, from about uh, 11 until one o'clock with about an hour on the water. And the, the dragon boat season will be starting uh, the beginning of April, and it goes on until the weather gets too cold, the water gets too cold, uh, sort of about middle of April. Um, for the about two years ago, the US Dragon Boat Federation uh, created a para dragon division and um <clears throat> for for teams with disabilities and uh they invited uh, last year the para dragon teams to compete for the first time at the club crew national competitions which were held in sarasota florida so i went with the out of sight dragons and um we did very well. We actually won the Paradragon division of the 2,000-meter uh, race, got a gold medal, and that uh, gave us a berth to the uh, club crew world championships uh, this year. And so we're all excited. We're busy trying to fundraise to, to send a team of uh, – we're a team of 14 in a, a small boat – to compete in the World Championships this coming July. Um, be, before we go, there's a DC Dragon Boat Festival on May the 20, Saturday and Sunday, May 21 and 22. And so we'll be <clears throat> busy trying to recruit paddlers to help uh, enable us to take a full boat out in, in, at the DC Festival. Um, so that's the big, quick summary of, of OSD. We were incorporated in as, as a <clears throat> 501c3 uh, organization in, in 2010. And uh, as <clears throat> Merrill was explaining, um, we was a, a lady called um, May Bell uh, set us up, and her son had suggested to her creating a blind and visually impaired team. Uh, he was one of the organizers of the DC Festival back then in 2010. So uh, 
anyone who wants to find out more about us, we, we if they go onto Facebook and just type Out of Sight Dragons, just search for Out of Sight Dragons. We have a Facebook page. Um, we uh, our, our mother <clears throat> club is the DC Dragon Boat Club, and you can find they have a website. If you search for DC DBC, you'll find their web site dcdragonboat.org and uh, OSD have a web page within the DC Dragon Boat Club website. A, a question if I could, sir. So in describing the the uh, the boat, you've got um you've got a two paddlers that sit side by side. Correct. I see. Okay. And then there, I've never done this before so, or never had it described. So then they would be um, paddling as the, uh, uh, the, what are the, what would you call the person in the front? The drum. The drum. There's, there's a stroke. There's a drummer at the very front. Drummer. Okay. Yeah. I, I wanted to use the right words. I didn't know what to use. Okay. okay. Very good. Um, Unlike in rowing, you, the paddlers are actually paddling in the direction they're going rather than in rowing where oh, you're that's true. going backwards. Yes. Oh. And, and how long are the races? How long, how long is the race? Generally, there are, there are three lengths. There's a 200-meter race, a 500-meter race, and then uh, at the very end of the, the festival or, or the <clears throat> regatta, there's a, a two-kilometer race. To, okay, and and it's all just straight, right? You're not turning at all or anything. It's just straight two ahead. Two kilometer tends to you you do uh, go around in circles. You you oh. do. Um, that would be harder, I would think. So then the people on one side would have to paddle, and the other ones would have to stop if you were going to turn. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so they'd like to be on the side that them. doesn't paddle. You don't stop. Oh. The ones on the inside actually do what's called drawing. They they. Um, Draw, but they put their paddle in the water and sort of draw the water toward them, reaching out and pulling the water toward the boat. Oh. And then the ones on the outside just have to dig in and paddle a bit harder. Um, but the actual steering is done from the back by the steerer, who has a, a long oar that's about sort of 10 feet, eight to 10 feet long and, and sticks out one side. And so you tend to always have to turn to your left, otherwise mm-hmm. it'll be yeah. difficult trying to so go. How fast does it go? I mean, if you're, if all your rowers are pulling really hard and doing what they're supposed to be doing, how fast does a dragon boat go? In miles, but I'm not sure. I think it, it's the, the professional fast team in the world championships will probably be going um, eight, nine miles an hour. Um, It it feels very quick when you've got 20 paddlers uh, all paddling in, in sync. Um, (laughs) And the, the, um, yeah, the, 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 the steerer is standing up at the back and the drummer is sitting in the chair. And and so they, they can really feel the speed as you go. Um, yeah, that's, you get the two kilometer um, takes ten to fifteen minutes, depending on how fast you are. Mm. Um, okay. Where the where's the championship going to be in July? It's in Sarasota. There's a special man-made lake um, 
called Nathan. It's on in Nathan Benderson Park. It's a mm-hmm. lake where the, the main um, part of the water is well, is the race um, track, whatever the, the racing site. And then there's a um, channel um, behind a, an island where, where the teams, when they finish racing, they they sort of quietly paddle back. Mm-hmm. Back channel so they don't have to go back down the race course. So you only own one boat. I mean, do you own this boat? That we, you we have four boats. Yeah, four at, boats. Yes, we we've got uh, <clears throat> we've got two two uh, sort of racing what's called standard racing boats that are twenty person boats, um, and we have a an old rather heavy training boat which has uh, also for 20 paddlers and then last year the club purchased a uh, what's called a small boat which has 10 paddlers oh. mm-hmm. so you have to make sure like when you meet on a saturday you have to make sure that you have someone there who's a drummer and someone who's a steerer because you need those yes. people yes okay Huh. We 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 uh, the club organized itself using um, Team Snap, which is a software a lot of uh, amateur clubs use, um, and so we, we use that as a messaging program. And you sign up to practice on Team Snap online. And interesting. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we Wonderful. have four minutes left. Are there? Do any we have any questions? other questions? You and I have been asking all the questions. Yeah, we- <laughs> This is a whole new thing for me. Uh, I've never me too. Heard so yeah. Any well, other questions? Come down. We're, we're, we're trying it's to. It's so far. I'd love to do it, but it's so far. Really? Well, it's it's May 21 and 22 is the DC Festival. So it would be a good excuse just to come to DC and, and, you, and you can watch the yeah. um, festival yeah. from, um, huh. from the top of the um, Kennedy. Center is a good will be a good spot to mm-hmm. watch races. Oh, nice! Okay. Okay. Yeah, um, I have a couple questions? of race hands. Uh, Gary, you can go ahead. I just wanted to make sure I understand this. Now, if you're pushing, if you're pushing forward with your paddle, would that not make the boat then go backward? No, you you put your paddle in into the water, sort of about. Three, three to four feet in front of you, and then you pull backwards. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. So, I got it. <clears throat> do you sense. have do you have much of a waiting list for this uh, to, to sign up for this? No, I mean a- anyone is. Um, we we have plenty of space for for all, all newcomers, and um, it's it's for all ranges. The oldest paddlers we're in a sort of early 70s but we have people in their 20s and 30s and sort of everything in between um the <clears throat> we welcome anyone on saturdays but um we also go out other times of the week and the uh club crew team that will be going to the world championships will be practicing a lot more than just saturdays does it cost much? What I mean, just your bathing suit and so forth, or whatever you wear. Life jacket. Uh, no, the only the only real cost to to the outer side dragons is is paying for hotel and airfares to go to Sarasota. Um, 
we we belong to the DC Dragon Boat Club and the annual dues that they um, ask members to to uh, pay is a hundred and fifty. Neil Brendan Ward, read bonjour. Thank you. But it, for a lot of the out of sight dragons, we we give them what we call scholarships, and and so it, it's free. We provide uh, personal flotation devices and and paddles. Um, so they're only cost really is, is is getting to the wolf thank you that, sir. that was very interesting okay okay well, well thank you very much for having us on thank you so much that's interesting um at two o'clock we've scheduled more door prizes any more miss sandra okay so next up we have another set of resistance bands Oh, stop beeping at me. Let's see. Let me get my list. Amazon, give me a random number between 1 and 104. Your random number between 1 and 104 is 44. 44. Who is 44? 44 is Gary Legates. Congratulations, Gary. You just won yourself a set of resistance bands. Okay, want to do one more? Okay. Yeah, all right. Next is... For his dragon boating. Yeah, <laughs> you can share. There's enough for you and Ninette to share. Um, okay. Uh, next is Good Karma. It is a shower gel, and it's called Good Karma. Okay, Amazon. Give me a random number between 1 and 104. Here's a number between 1 and 104. It's 97. 97. 97. Catherine Johnson from Colorado. Congratulations, Catherine. Very good. Thank you for coming, Colorado. Turning it, yep. Turning it back over to you, Jane. Okay. Save that. Okay. Um, the next panel is Meryl again. And I see your people are here. I'm so excited. Okay, great. Um, I would like to introduce the Education, uh, Rehabilitation, and Employment panel. Um, we have a few speakers. The first one is my friend and one of my mentors, Naomi Sewell. She is a retired uh, district supervisor for uh, rehab services in Missouri. And before that, she was an employment specialist. And she is currently the president of the Missouri Council of the Blind. Um, then we have Tony March, the director of DOORS, which is the Division of Rehab Services. And she is with the Office of Blindness and Vision Services. And she's going to give a doors update. And then we have Conchita Hernandez. And she's with the statewide Department of Blindness and Vision Services, the Maryland Department of Education. And she does a great, has a great newsletter every month, which I read. Um, and is Hindley supposed to speak with you or not? I'm not sure. Hindley Williams, is she supposed to speak, Conchita? Or yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Oh, and Hanley Williams also, she's from the Image Center and she's dealing with the um, youth transition program. So um, everybody can speak in, in that order. So first, uh, Naomi, and she's also going to talk about how she managed and supervised the team and her job duties as well for her two positions. So go ahead, Naomi. Thank you. I just want to say thank you for inviting me. And um, I wanted to definitely say hello to Patrick and, and Jane. Um, so anyway, um, what I would say, I will tell you this. Um, I, this was my third career. So I started out working for IBM for 11 years. I have a degree in broadcasting from Kansas University. And um, so I worked in that field for a very short time. Um, things were not good then. Um, you know, the ADA was not in place. And so um, I had a really hard time finding a job in that field. And um, so then... What else? Um, okay, so then I went to work for IBM, and I worked in um, I worked in our employment office, uh, and so started off as a receptionist, and then went up to being a um, uh, got promoted, and but anyway, I ended up transferring to our um, customer center here in St. Louis, and became did event management which i really really liked but ibm had a big layoff in 1993 Uh, many many people in the um north america were let go um big big change so anyway i went to work in radio and my husband and i were the morning team on an adult rock station in uh columbia missouri and so um then we came back here to St. Louis. So I got hired as an employment specialist with the state of Missouri, um, rehabilitation services for the blind. And so there were two of us that covered the whole state. And so it was pretty clear to me that um, I was going to have to pretty much figure out how I was going to do my job. There was really not a whole lot of direction except find people jobs. And so um, anyway, what I did is um, I met with a lot of um, a lot of clients, um, you know, to find out what they wanted to do, that kind of thing. Um, also, set up um, interview panels, which was uh, luckily I knew I knew people that could help out with that outside of the state agency, and um, so it worked out really well. But um, what I decided I had to do um, was. Um, I needed to figure out how I was going to get in with companies and, um, you know, find people jobs. So um, the best uh, thing that that worked for me was calling an HR, you know, department and and saying um, who, who I was and said, I'd like to come over and learn about your company. And then I'd, uh, which I did, and um, then I would ask them, tell me the jobs that you feel are the most needed right now. And then I would, so after all that, I'd say that I wanted to come over and observe um, how the job was being done 
and what exactly was needed. So if it was in a call center, I would ask people, um, well, I'd ask the, the management, how many calls do they have to make an hour or answer an hour, complete an hour? Um, I'd ask um, the kinds of questions that they had needed to ask. Um, and pretty much um, what I did was break down the job. So it gave me a really good idea of the kind of person that we would be looking for. Um, and I, you know, one of my real, um, you know, real exciting uh, jobs situations that I went to or worked on was um, Drury, which is a hotel chain uh, based here in St. Louis. And um, so basically what I did, I was doing an event there. And so I had to do training at the hotel, which I did. And I got to know the hotel manager pretty well. So I started working with her on positions that would, um, that we would be able to fill. So, um, you know, I learned about, they needed someone in the laundry. So I learned all about the laundry, uh, how, you know, towels should be folded and all that. I also learned about how rooms were cleaned and their whole method for doing that. But we, we placed somebody in the, in the laundry um, and they had a job coach and they were very open to that. Um, so I did that. And I also went to their call center, um, which is about an hour and a half from here. And, uh, so that was a really good situation. Um, again, uh, an employment, me and a job, uh, accessibility person went to look at the program that they were using to take reservations using JAWS. And so we placed a few people in the call center, um, which was really good. And those people were from Southeast Missouri where that I was able to place in those positions. And so um, I ended up meeting with the HR manager for the whole company. And um, she wrote a letter to all the hotels and said, I want you to know that, you know, we've been working with Naomi and if you have any positions, definitely you want to talk to her. Okay. So that was great. So they ended up getting employee, uh, employer of the year uh, from rehab services for the blind. Um, so that was a really good situation. And I really had to learn the business. Okay. And I did, and I learned all about how Drury operates and all of the things that they, they require. And uh, it was great. And then um, I also um, did some uh, work with Walmart, uh, learned about their bakeries, how, how all that went. Um, and um, let's see. Um, so that was a real big deal. Um, also a, um, a medical center or, you know, a big, big doctor's practice. And about 40 doctors in the practice. And I happened to go to that practice and got in there and we got a person hired um, in their medical records area. And she worked there for a long time. Um, and that was really good. Um, also did stuff with high school um, students, such as working with Taco Bell for them to hire um, students in the summer. I learned how to make, uh, I think I learned how to make some tacos or something. I can't remember now. I just remember 
standing behind, you know, what, standing there and learning about how things were laid out and giving them suggestions. So they ended up hiring high school students. Also, I worked with Pizza Hut um, and they, um, they had an employee already there and I had to teach her how to make pizzas. So that was, you know, and again, it was really interesting. I also went to McDonald's, worked with McDonald's and uh, was sworn to secrecy as to how they make hamburgers and put them together. Um, so at this one point, I was, they wanted me to work at the window to see what I thought about that. And uh, so I got, I'm telling you, I got, I couldn't hardly speak. I was just, I don't know what happened, but like a car pulled up and I, I didn't, it was hard because I couldn't hear the car too well. And also I don't think it would have been a good match because at the time the computer system just would not work um, with, with JAWS. Um, so I did that. Um, I also did an assembly line deal where I got this guy a job um, right on the spot and I had to learn, I had to pick out cans that were dented. So I did it and they said, okay, okay, uh, we'll hire him. <laughs> so, but I did a lot of that kind of thing. Um, and so it was, it was a good job in that I pretty much did my own thing. Um, I um, sent my, my manager uh, every month of all the things that I'd done. And um, so, uh, and, you know, I pretty much worked on my own. I, I taught people how to interview. Like I said, I, um, did a little bit of job coaching. So about a year into that, I was asked if I would want to be a supervisor. And I said, no. And so they kept bugging me and calling me and I kept saying, no, I didn't want to do that. And then f- finally, um, I decided that I would do that. And after two years um, into my job, um, my supervisor was on an interview panel to hire a district supervisor. And I said, well, how are things going? And he said, well, I'm glad you asked me that because our director at the time was telling me we got to find a way for Naomi to, to take this job. So I decided I would do it. And um, so, you know, I became a supervisor Um the other thing I was going to mention too, that I also put together two, two student network events. Um, and they were, it was a weekend uh, seminar for college kids and about, you know, about, you know, job skills and, and all sorts of things like that. So I did that for a few years. Um, and that was part of my job development position. So I became a supervisor and that was really at first it was really hard because I had to learn so much about case management and all of the, um, you know, the whole thing about, you know, um, all the rules, all of the uh, federal regulations regarding employment. And I remember that maybe the first week I, I just was so overwhelmed and the supervisor that whose place I was taking said something like, um, well, you know, you only, you're, I know you're overwhelmed, but you're only picked up about 10% so far as, you know, it's about as far as we've gotten. 
And so anyway, I had, you know, I had employees test me. I had two people file grievances against me. One of one person actually apologized to me later um, and said she really wanted to, that I'd done a whole lot for her and that she really apologized that she filed that grievance. So um, I had a pretty steady uh, staff. You know, um, one of the things I did was um, I was all, I was available. My door was open. Um, you know, I tried to. Uh, not isolate myself from my employees. And I did, you know, what, one of the things I did was I did case management reviews every month with, with all of the rehab teachers and the counselors and the uh, job development specialists that we hired to take my place and our mobility instructor. So I had some, I started out with three, um, one mobility instructor, three rehab teachers and three counselors. Um, and then I had an office manager who's uh, still a really good friend of mine. And she was outstanding. And um, so she had three people underneath her. So, you know, in one way or the other, I was managing all these people. And um, I got asked to do a lot of projects, um, which was good. Um, and so I was a supervisor for, uh, I'm going to say 18 years. And, you know, what I'm going to say is that I went, th- had different managers and a few of them are gone and I'm still here. <laughs> That's the way I would say it. Um, a lot of some ups and downs. And um, so it, it got to be where, I guess six years ago, um, I decided that I needed to retire. Um, I saw some things changing, which, you know, that's just the way it is sometimes when new regulations come out. And I was asked to help write a handbook, which I'd done already, you know, years before, but new regulations. And I thought, you know what, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. You know, I, I don't feel like it. And I had also worked on a case management system, um, traveled all, all over the place looking at different management systems. Uh, and um, I was pretty, I was, I really enjoyed that actually. It was a lot of work. It was about three years worth of work, working with the developers um, uh, who did not like me too much because I was constantly saying, but wait a minute, this isn't working. This isn't working. And uh, <laughs> so, but we had a group of us that tested, and so I that that whole system got put in, and then, um, so I I also got um, some training in motivational interviewing, took a course, um, and you know just did a lot of things, and and one I was really lucky because at some point because I got to go with my uh, supervisor. Uh, to Washington, D.C. for um, to go up on Capitol Hill and to go to the um, the um, CSA VR meetings and also the um, blind uh, agency meetings, which were which were good. And so I got to do a lot of things um, and and I'm glad I did. Um, But as I said, 
I got to the point where I felt like, you know, I don't want to do all this work again. I've done it. I, I just, I'm just done. And so I made the decision to retire. Um, and um, I don't regret it at all. Um, and so a lot of people, um, you know, are gone now. A lot of, a lot of people are, are, you know, no longer with the agency. I don't know a lot of people in the agency. The director now is a really good friend of mine and we, we grew up in the agency together. So, you know, I, we keep in touch and, and, uh, another person who is, uh, assistant deputy director now he and i grew up in the agency together so you know um so it's good um from that point of view and you know like i said i think i got to do a lot of things i got to travel a lot uh, um as far as managing my team um sorry about that as far as managing my team um you know like i said my main my main uh you know, my main philosophy was I needed to keep, um, I needed to keep my staff, uh, pretty, pretty close. And I did, and I did, um, you know, learned about them, learned about what was going on in their lives. They felt comfortable coming to me about things. And so that was good. And, um, you know, we also did a lot of fun things at, in the office, you know, just to keep, to keep morale up. And I know one time we, we have a big Mardi Gras here. So, in fact, it's going on right now. Uh, Naomi, yeah, I hate to cut it short, yeah. but we have to make sure. But it was a great no problem. Okay. We, we have to make sure that the others are able to talk. But thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, now, um, Tony, uh, March can go ahead and, and speak. Thank Good you. afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope you're in, enjoying your conference so far. I'm Tony March. I'm the director of the Office for Blindness and Vision Services, and I'm just going to give you an overall update um, on OBVS services in the past year or so. Uh, doors in OBVS are completely back to working in our offices. Uh, in the first week of July 2021, all DOORS staff returned to working in our offices. We are able to meet with DOORS consumers in the office, but continue to offer meetings virtually and over the phone. We have resumed in-person services, but have also maintained most of the virtual services that were developed as a result of all of the teleworking that we did. We found that uh, many of our consumers preferred those virtual services. By way of update on personnel, many of you already know, but one of our longtime staff, Amy Wisner, the supervisor in Southern Maryland and PG County, has left OBBS. She has moved on to another position in the agency, and we will certainly miss her. We have some new staff. One, however, uh, Debbie Williamson is a returning staff person to to continue to share her expert knowledge with us. We have also hired Jesea Cobb, Rosa Harris, Bill George, and Tiffany Keats. And one of our longtime counselors, Shauna Leonard, has been promoted 
to supervisor for PG County, Southern Maryland in Anne Arundel. We currently have one vocational rehabilitation counselor vacancy and two teacher for the blind vacancies. Um, we've had a lot of changes in the in the past year. Uh, year. We have a new state superintendent, Mohammed Chowdhury. Uh, superintendent Chowdhury made a point to visit doors personally. And, and within the first six months of, of him being in his position, he did come to doors. He we he met with exec staff. Um, he came to hear information about each of the DOORS programs and our impact on the citizens of Maryland. He has only been on board since July, but is making some positive changes to the MSDE and DOORS. Superintendent Chowdhury has made and continues to make organizational changes, including asking our director, Scott Dennis, to meet with him regularly. Uh, for updates and discussion of the program, Scott Dennis will report to Superintendent Chowdhury directly through the superintendent's special advisor. And honestly, this is this is a positive thing for Doors. Um, we are a little different than most of the MSDE programs, and this really does give us a voice. Like all VR agencies across the country. Doris has a state rehabilitation council with members appointed by the governor. This independent council is charged with providing guidance and direction for the vocational rehabilitation program. Anil Lewis was a member of that council until recently, and we are sorry that he is no longer able to be a member. But I'm pleased to say that we have added a few members uh, to represent the interests of individuals who are blind and vision impaired. Uh, we've added Penny Reader to represent ACB on our State Rehabilitation Council. We also have a parent of two blind children and a BEP vendor. And um, more recently, Ronza Othman has been added to the list of SRC members, which greatly increases uh, the voice of the blind in, in that council. As our focus for the rehabilitation program is quality employment for all our consumers, I wanted to talk today a bit about Amazon. OBVS has had, has had some very positive outcomes from Amazon as an employer this year. We currently have 11, 11 individuals in some stage of employment with Amazon at one of four different Amazon locations in Maryland. Some of those individuals are hired and about to have their cases closed. Some of them are in training, just learning their jobs, and some are just starting their employment. Amazon has established a team to coordinate with doors and to provide support and accommodations for staff who are blind and vision paired. Given the number and variety of employment opportunities at Amazon, this is a very positive step and will hopefully be re replicated across the country. The Teachers for the Blind in the Independent Living Older Blind program are continuing to provide services for our seniors in Maryland. This year, we have implemented a new satisfaction survey specific to this program. The satisfaction survey is available in print, electronically, and by phone. Procedures are in place for staff to follow up uh, by phone with all consumers who received and did not complete a survey to ensure that they have the opportunity to provide their input. And the survey will be distributed twice a year. The Business Enterprise Program for the Blind 
And the staff continue to work with the blind vendors toward reopening their vending sites. As most of the vending sites are in federal buildings, quite a few sites continue to be closed. The pandemic has been devastating for the business enterprise program. Uh, This has been a very hard time for the vendors in the program. Doors and OBDS uh, was able to acquire and distribute the federal relief and restoration funds available from the federal government for the purpose of assisting blind vendors whose businesses were negatively impacted by the pandemic. OBVS received and distributed just over $550,000 to the blind vendors in the state of Maryland. The Maryland BEP program is a very successful program with over 50 vending sites. The continued closure of vending sites has had a financial impact on the program operations as well. The vocational rehabilitation program, the BR program, part of our program has and will continue to assist financially to ensure the operation of the program in support of the blind vendors, covering staff salaries and other costs for which VR dollars can be used. As virtual appointments and services are expected to continue into the future, DOORS is currently testing a means of collecting electronic signatures. Many of our consumers prefer virtual appointments, but like many agencies, we require signatures on several documents. We are currently working with an organization to enhance their product to ensure that the software and processes are accessible. The company is working with us, and we have had several testing sessions to identify glitches and to work out obstacles. I hope to report next year that we have a fully accessible means of obtaining signatures. Uh, that, uh, that is pretty much my update. Just want to give you some statistics. The OBVS program is currently serving 923 vocational rehabilitation consumers. 45 individuals um, were closed in FY22 as successfully employed. The Independent Living Older Blind Program is serving 646 individuals, and 112 individuals were closed in FY22. So um, that's what I have for you right now. Uh, If you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. And I hope you're enjoying your conference. Thank you, Tony. And uh, Ben, uh, we also have Conchita Hernandez um, and uh, Jaime Williams, who will be speaking as well. So thank you both. Thank you. Um, Thank you so much for having me. So a little bit about, um, about myself. So I have a dual role where I am at the Maryland School for the Blind and at the Maryland State Department of Education um, and kind of overseeing services for blind students in our schools. Um, and today in my role here, I'm um, kind of attending through the Maryland School for the Blind. So I want to give you all some updates and some information. I do see there is not a chat option. So I was going to put some links in the chat, but I can send those along um, 
afterwards. So we do have a new director of outreach services at the Maryland School for the Blind. Um, her name is Diane Colburn, and we're very, very excited for her to get started and share a lot of innovative ideas and how we want to um, outreach to our families and our students across the state. So very excited to have her. Um, our staff at the Maryland School for the Blind is all fully vaccinated due to the fact that we have a high vulnerable student population. Um, so that went into effect earlier this year. Um, like I was mentioned earlier, I have a couple of resources and ways that people can find out what's happening across the state. So one is a TBI portal. So this has um, a live calendar of events with links to sign up. So for example, this convention information was there. It's divided up by month and you can look at anything happening across the state of Maryland um, in relation to blindness and the education of students. Um, and I can send that in a link later. I also have a monthly newsletter that was mentioned earlier. Um, and I'm doing those now bi-monthly just because there's so much going on. And it has on there the calendar of events for the month, but also everything happening related to education of blind and low vision students. So programming, scholarships, um, this is definitely scholarship season. And I have uh, the ACB scholarships definitely listed there for students. Um, so if you are interested in signing up for the monthly newsletter, I can send this um, to one of the organizers and they can send it out later. Um, we also are a part of uh, something called Transition Coalition. So it's different agencies around Maryland that serve blind and low vision students that come together um, so for example, Doors is a part, um, the Columbia Lighthouse is a part, um, different uh, organizations across the state. We had our first, um, conference, little mini, mini conference, um, in the fall where we brought different speakers and different agencies to come share their information and resources. And we're very excited and want to continue to do that. Um, and that's specific to students who, our transition age, so it's students 18 to 21. Um, and another thing that our outreach department at the Maryland School for the Blind did, especially if you know young children, um, we worked on something with an organization called Bedtime in a Box. Bedtime in a Box is a box that has bedtime routine stuff ready to go. So it has... Um, pajamas, a books for children to read, um, a towel, soap. And then the most important part of this um, box is it has a bedtime routine that when it was the print version, it has, you know, days of the week, did I brush my teeth? Did I kind of taking kids through a bedtime routine and trying to set up a time that they always go to bed every day. Um, and this is super, super important because it helps them get a good night's sleep, be ready for school the next day. It, it has a lot of um, kind of research-based things that help out. So they reached out to us to make these boxes for blind kids. Um, and specifically, they have a preschool version. And so we worked with our Instructional Resource Center in Maryland to modify the routine log. Um, it's in Braille large print. And also modify the materials in the box. So instead of the books, we got uh, we got books from seedlings that are both in print and braille. Um, we got manipulatives that the children can play with. Um, we got a talking alarm clock as opposed to the the visual alarm clock that was in there. Um, and we 
made the routine log fully accessible. So it's based on um, Matt magnets. And so the students use magnets to say, yes, I did this. Yes, I did this. Um, and it's a great, great um, resource for children in early childhood. So if you are interested in um, the Bedtime in a Box, it is a currently it's um, done through an organization and they do sell the boxes. They're a hundred dollars a box. Um, I'm gonna tell you it's well worth it. Um, however, there are some states that are kind of purchasing them for, you know, as a state and then giving them to their early childhood kids. So if you are interested in that, just feel free to reach out to me and I can provide more information on that. Um, we also, through a partnership, um, as you all know, we have a huge TVI shortage in the state as we do in the country. And so we started a program in Maryland where we are fully funding 15 people in Maryland to become TBIs. And the class was just selected and they're going to be, begin coursework this spring with the caveat that they have to work three years in Maryland post-graduation um, in order to receive the 100% assistance. And so all of those individuals um, will be beginning courses soon, and they will be starting their internship in the fall of 2023. So we're very, very excited, and we really want to make sure that we are um, continuing to kind of meet this shortage of TBIs that exists, not just in Maryland, but across the state. Um, so that is kind of little updates of what I have. Um, if anyone has any questions about anything related to education, like Tony said, we do have a new superintendent of education um, and he is absolutely, you know, doing what's best for kids and really about accountability, which I think is wonderful. So um, if you all have any questions, please feel free to raise your hand. Or let me know. And I'm not sure. I don't know if Hindley is on. Oh, there's Hindley. Hello, Contida. I'm here. <laughs> awesome. So um, one of the grant programs that we run is um, the Bridges Help Desk. And it's been a very successful program that I think all of y'all should definitely know about. And so I'm going to turn it over to Hindley so she can share about um, the Bridges Help Desk. Go ahead. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for allowing us to come here and speak today. Uh, my name is Hindley Williams, and I am the project coordinator for the Maryland Bridges Transition Help Desk. And I want to share a little bit with you about this program. Um, it's a relatively new program. We're in our second grant year, um, so still trying to get the word out about, the, about this. Um, I will provide a warning in advance that later on when I'm speaking, I am going to be reading out um, some of our contact information and social media information. So if you want to grab something to write with, I'll give that out in a couple minutes. Um, so the Bridges Transition Help Desk is a really wonderful program um, that we're very happy to be part of. And the program is specifically geared towards transition age students. And what that means for our purposes is ages 14 through 21. And our program acts as a bridge for the students between high school and whatever comes next for them, as well as college and whatever comes next for them. Um, and, you know, whether that's employment, more college, um, you know, whatever that might mean for the individual student. Um, and the program is specifically for students who are blind or have low vision. And it's also for parents, families, educators, and anyone in the student support system that may have any sort of question. Um, the thing about the help desk that I 
I wish that they had when I was um, of transition age as a blind and, and uh, as a student with blindness. I wish that this was around when I was younger, because one of the things about the help desk that we really love is that it is very flexible. Um, it is it is something that a person can reach out to as needed when they have a specific question to get that specific question answered. Um, we do have a little bit of programming occasionally. Um, we do have um, an educator's roundtable coming up in early March um, that's going to be about uh, requesting testing accommodations in the state of Maryland, as well as um, high stakes tests for College Board and other things of that nature. Um, we are looking to have a session for students about SSI work incentives. So we do have some programming here and there, but by and large, our service is mostly as needed, reaching out for things that the student needs or that someone in the student support system might need. Um, now, this might be sounding a little bit vague to you, you know, what sorts of questions can I reach out to or you know, what students do you know, you know, if, if you know of students, how can this help them? The reason we keep this vague is because if you think about it, anything really impacts transition for a blind or low vision student. Um, you know, I know looking back on my time, you know, I, I'm a graduate of Baltimore County Public Schools. And looking back on my time as a student, I reflect on all of the different independent living skills I needed to build as a blind person moving from high school into the next step. Um, I needed to work on cane travel skills. I needed to learn more about using assistive technology. I needed to learn about different types of advocacy. So everything, anything really can fall into the concept of transition because, you know, when, when a blind or low vision student is trying to build those skills, learning about those skills and learning best practices of how to do them, all of that is going to impact that, that individual as they're going throughout the rest of their lives. So another way to say that is anything that a person can think of who is in our required age range or is, a, is supporting someone in that required age range is going to be relevant to our purposes. And so we keep it very, uh, the definition very vague on purpose so that people can reach out to us for all of those different concerns. Um, so how do you contact us? This is the part where I'm going to tell you all some things and you can write them down if you know someone who might benefit from this service or you feel that you yourself could. Um, and again, anybody can reach out to us, parents, teachers of the visually impaired, educators, you know, anybody who might have questions about a student that they are working with and need some guidance. Um, and also just blindness and low vision questions in general that, uh, that uh, a person might have in a school setting. Um, so let me see here. Let me pull this up so I can read it to you word for word. So there's a variety of ways to reach out to the help desk. The first thing that I will say is you've all heard a lot about Conchita's um, newsletter that she's now sending out twice a month. And we send all of our announcements about events that we are having in those newsletters. So that's one way to get our information and also to see what's going on with us. Um, we include information about the blog posts that we'll be posting throughout that month. We include information about our upcoming events and we regularly include our contact information so that people always have it handy if they find that they wanna reach out to us. Um, so I recommend getting LinkedIn with that because Conchita also includes lots of other relevant information throughout the field um, that is really, really helpful. Um, okay, so how do you reach out to the help desk? There's a number of different ways. So firstly, we have an email address, so you can email us if you would like. That email address is helpdesk at image, I-M-A-G-E, M-D, 
as in Maryland.org. So again, all together, helpdesk at imagemd.org. Um, and we have that uh, email address because we are actually based out of the Image Center of Maryland, which is located in Towson. Um, and that's a center that serves individuals with disabilities. Uh, so we're based out of there. And our grant is from um, MSDE as well. Um, so we're linked in with Conchita that way also. Um, you can also reach out to us via phone. Our phone number is 443-320-4003. We also have another phone number if you want to text. And that texting phone number is 410-305-9199. We are also on Twitter at Bridges Help Desk. You can follow us, engage with our content, or even message us that way. That's fine, too. And then we have a Facebook page as well. I'm going to read this one word for word because I want to make sure that you guys get this. Okay, so it's Bridges Free Help Desk for Maryland Blind slash Low Vision Transition Students. Um, So we are on Facebook as well. You can follow us. We post weekly, sometimes multiple times per week if there's a lot of updates. Um, and you can also message us on Facebook that way as well. Um, but also, again, you know, please do connect with us on social media. Um, refer us to people who you think might be able to benefit from our services. Um, and we thank you again for the opportunity to speak to you all today. Um, and if there are any questions, I'll stick around and answer anything that anyone might have to ask. No hands. Okay. Um, uh, Pat and Meryl, do you have any? Yeah. I actually have a question for Naomi. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Naomi, if I understood uh, uh, what you were doing initially when you um, went to look at jobs, you actually had to do the job yourself and see sort of on the fly how you would adapt the job to um, to make it doable by a blind person? Yes, sure. I did. I did. <laughs> I'm sorry, I unmuted myself. I knew you were going to have a question, Patrick. Yeah, that, must, have, that <laughs> must be really tricky to, to instantly come up with reasonable accommodations for a job that you don't even know what the job is. Well, That's, you know, I, I did, though. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Um, I did. Um, like a lot of it was teaching the person hand over hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, for instance, when it was working in the laundry for Drury. So I knew, you know, I, I needed to know the whole process. You know, mm-hmm. how many towels do they have? Do you have to fold an hour? How many, you know, all of that. Okay. And then they would show me, okay, this is how we want our, our towels. Loaded. Okay, I get it. So, yes. Mm-hmm. And also we hired a job coach as well mm-hmm. for this employee. Right. Um, as far as... um. Uh, working in a call center, um, I was. I was going to ask you about that one. Yeah, uh, yeah. So um, I was in some some situations. Uh, there had to be um, there had to be a uh, you know an, an IT person in the company and someone that we would contract with to work together. I, what I also wanted to mention that I placed about four people at Centene Corporation, which is a, um, it's a medical uh, uh, care organization, basically. 
And they're based here in St. Louis, and they're in about 28 states right now. And um, I'm on their National Advisory Committee on Disabilities. So um, anyway, but with Centene, for instance, uh, we placed some people, and we had to get the IT guy to buy in to what we were doing. Because a lot of them will say, well, we can't tell you, we can't give you any of this because it's, you know, it's private, you know, it's, and, and we'd have to, I'd have to call their HR person, go, look, this is a, you've got to get this guy to cooperate. Okay. Um, and, you know, so some places it was better than, than others. Um, Let me ask you a question about, about, about something like that. Just, okay. I'll throw it out to you. So. Uh, I know that if you've got a person and then that person become gets accommodated, uh, let's say with jaws of fusion or something like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think the accommodation probably had to be two things. One, jaws had to work with the uh, application that was already there, so the application you know had to work properly with jaws. But a lot of times I've seen where individuals when they're in production type jobs. Um, they uh, they can't work as fast as let's say their sighted counterparts beside them. Were you able ever able when you to negotiate the fact that the blind person mm-hmm. might be able to do the job, but they can't do it quite as fast and cut no. down on the production? No, I know. No. Um, and and that is because you know um, I heard Conchita talking about Amazon, yeah. and uh, we're work- or the state of Missouri is working with Amazon and. It's a whole thing. And I mean it. They, they've got to find jobs within their system that blind people are succeeding in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know all about, um, you know, how they uh, deal with, you know, labeling everything and they have to label so many an hour. It's a whole day. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that to me is not necessarily a job that I would place somebody in. Okay. okay. Yeah. It so you're, you're placing a, people in jobs that you you know right off the bat they could be successful with minimal. Oh yeah. Uh, and also, yeah. And also, if we and if we had to get stuff scripted in order it to work with the proprietary software of the company, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. that's what we then that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I I used to be um pretty involved because I sure didn't want to see a person start a job. And because um, it was taking time to script um, or IT wasn't necessarily uh, getting involved like they needed to, then that really wasn't the person's fault. And Mm -hmm. so I never had a situation where a person would be let go because of the slowness of things. Um, You know, I I was always worried about that. But um, so that's what I would say. Um, A lot of scripting. Um, uh, working with IT and making sure they understood that they had to be involved with this and they had to not make statements like we're not going to let you ha- see this software because it's, it's, it's proprietary and we can't let you see it. No, no. So a lot of that. And, and I will tell you this too. I mean, I had situations where I had a person working at a bank, got her job at a bank here. She was working the, the um, switchboard. So uh, she had a braille note at the time and I worked with her. I was there. I stayed with her a week. Um, And we had 
And they had a really good manager, really impressed with the manager. So it just happened that this person just could not do this job, could not. Um, also, uh, mobility skills, could not find her way to the restroom. Um, it was around the corner. And, uh, okay, so I had to tell her, look, you cannot ask people for help. This, it's basically out the door and turn to your right and turn to your right. And there it is. Okay. So, you know, it just depended on the person. I'd say that was the, one of the only situations in which I felt so bad um, that it didn't work out. And they, they were not blaming us at all. Okay. And so they had asked me, would you be there when we let her go? I said, no, I won't. I said, if you feel you want to let, that you're going to let her go, you need to treat her like any other employee. I do not need to be there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that, you know, but that, so that's, that's pretty much how, how things went. Can we take one more hand? Hi guys. Hey, Sandra. <laughs> hey, Naomi. Um, <laughs> wonderful panel wonderful panel. Um, I had a, like a question and a thought. So I'm just wondering for, um, is there, with respect to transition, how about a mentoring program so that the high school age slash college age students can kind of see, you know, some Folks who are blind or visually impaired that are, you know, competent, who are, you know, capable about their going about their business, just to maybe model themselves on what life for them can be, you know, as they're older. Do you have that? This is, uh, oh, go ahead, Tony. This is Tony March and Conchita may have some, some information to add, but um, the Our agency um, provides pre-employment transition services for students who are referred to us uh, at the start of age, at age 14, as long as they're in ninth grade. And we can access a number of programs that provide that kind of support. Um, One of the biggest one is the NFB, and I think that might be what Conchita was going to talk about. Um, The NFB has a mentoring program where they match individuals, students uh, with uh, competent blind adults, and they work with, uh, communicate with those blind adults and do activities with those blind adults over the course of a year. In addition, during that program, they have special sessions on particular topics, um, self-advocacy, college and higher education, employment, interviewing, um, career search, career exploration, a variety of topics. So that's one of the mentoring programs that, that we access. One of the other ones that we access is with Maryland School for the Blind. And that is primarily for kids going to college. That first year in college as a blind student can be really tough. You're used to having your itinerant teacher. Yes, you can. <laughs> and um, it can be a real culture shock um, going to college and having to manage a lot of that stuff yourself. So the uh, Maryland School for the Blind um, has a college mentoring program that we access as well um, for that first year in college. So that's from doors, um, some of the things that we access. 
The only other thing I was going to say is, I don't know which um, electronic signature package you guys are using. Um, DocuSign seems to be working fairly well for my, my agency. So it's just a thought. And also uh, the Missouri um, Rehab Services for the Blind is using DocuSign and has been using it for a while. So if you need any information uh, regarding what they're doing, I'd be happy to pass it on to you. Uh, I appreciate the information. We are exploring Citrix right now, not just for the signature piece, but some also some additional communication pieces that we wanted to access. So um, where they are being very flexible and actually um, working on the, you know, the software itself um, to ensure that it is accessible. Okay. Thank you. Any other questions? One more question. My other one. Um, Naomi, why do you think <laughs> why do you think the unemployment rate still continues to be ridiculously high for people who are blind or have low vision? Well, you know, I think there are a few reasons. Um, I think that um, it's still hard for people to um, get employed um, as a blind person. I don't, I, I don't care what people say about all of the things that we have and, and everything. People are people. And unless you have a manager who is saying, this is the way it's going to be, and I want you to hire people with disabilities, uh, it's not going to happen. It just isn't. And also, um, you know, I, I found that now I used to place as many people um, or more than what the state of Maryland has. And I know it's a smaller state, but so our, our offices all had to, had to, you know, had a goal. And um, so, but what I would say is um, I think the mentoring is a great idea, you know, and it might be something that, you guys might want to work on, but, um, but what I would say is I think a lot of people just aren't used to working. Um, they don't really want to work. Um, I, you know, I've seen a few people that, you know, I think are really, uh, you know, really bright people. And I'm thinking, why haven't they ever worked? Okay. Sometimes they just don't have the, the umph to, you know, keep looking. Um, so I would say those to me would be the, the main reasons. Um, but I really do believe it's up to uh, companies and organizations who have people that will be pushing this and making sure that their managers are hiring people with disabilities. So, you know, it's just, it's, that's what I would say. Thanks so much for, for all of our panelists for this information about um, students and, and how they can be transitioned into to uh, the work life or whatever. And I, I very much appreciate the, all the information that we've gotten today about that. 